Bibles, please open them to John chapter 15. We'll be reading, starting in verse 17 through the end of the chapter, verse 27. Text is printed for you on page 6 of the bulletin. John chapter 15, starting in verse 17. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They have hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. You may be seated. And as you do, let us together go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for the Savior that you have given us, Jesus Christ, your only Son. And we thank you even for these words that can be difficult for us to grasp, to expect the hatred of this world as we follow obediently our Savior, crucified and risen. May your spirit instruct us. May your spirit work in us. Give us strength. Give us comfort to live as your faithful disciples in this world, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Hostility and animosity towards the church of Christ is nothing new. All you need to do is pick up a book on church history or look really anywhere outside of Western culture. The disciples of Jesus Christ have faced opposition from the very beginning. Our brothers and sisters around the world are currently facing it on a daily basis, some of them at the risk of their own lives. We are not there, but I think we can honestly say that hostility does seem to be increasing here in the West as the truths of Scripture regularly clash with the beliefs of our self-expressive, individualistic culture. One writer has even coined this stage in the relationship between our culture and Christianity as the negative world. And this is how he describes the negative world. Society has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as a Christian is a social negative, particularly in the elite domains of society. Christian morality is expressively repudiated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new public moral order. Subscribing to Christian moral views or violating the secular moral order brings negative consequences. Now there are some, and indeed there are many, who do disagree with the extent of this perspective. There is little question that we Christians are living in an increasingly hostile culture. Holding to, speaking on Christian convictions is growing more and more costly each and every day. It might cost you your job. It might cost you your reputation, your family, your friends, and more. 
And this should not, should not surprise us. We should not be shocked when this hostile world puts us, disciples of Jesus Christ, in its crosshairs. For Jesus, right here in John 15, tells us to expect it. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We need to have proper expectations. We need to hear these difficult, yet comforting. There is comfort in these words from our Savior. Like our crucified Lord, disciples of Christ can anticipate opposition from the world and strength from the Spirit. Like our crucified Lord, disciples of Jesus Christ can anticipate opposition from the world and strength from the Spirit. Like last week, we have two points that are in there for the, in the bulletin for you. Disciples expect the world's hate. Disciples expect the Spirit's help. These should be our expectations as disciples of Jesus Christ seeking to live faithfully in this world. And I emphasize that word faithfully. Because sometimes Christians will use the hostility of the world to return with hostility. Hostility from the world does not give us license to be obnoxious, to be retaliatory, harsh, or just flat-out jerks. We are still called to love our enemies. We are still called to pray for those who persecute us, to pray for those who hate us. We are still called to speak the hope that we have with gentleness and respect, as Peter tells the church. And these words of Christ are meant to help us remain faithful as disciples. First, disciples then expect the world's hate. Whereas the disciples' relationship with one another would be marked by love. It's the reason why I read 17. It kind of serves as a transition. The relationship that the disciples are going to have with the world around them is going to be marked by hostility. Jesus says it bluntly. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, our knowledge of English grammar tells us that this is a conditional, an if-then statement. The knowledge of scholars, who are smarter than me, tell us that this is actually a first-class conditional statement. What's a first-class one? It means that the assumption of the first condition is true. So this means Jesus is saying, since the world hates you, when the world hates you, He's not saying, hmm, they might hate you. Possibly they could hate you. It might eventually happen. He's saying hate is going to come. The disciples can count on it. You and I can count on it. So question, have you ever been to an event or maybe a, a place where heading into it, you simply knew people were going to dislike you? Alabama fans, you can nod your head right now. <laughs> contrary to childhood expectations, from, or contrary to what you might expect given my childhood proximity to Philadelphia, I am not a Philadelphia sports fan except for the Phillies. I am a prodigal. My father mourns uh, daily over my waywardness as a sports fan. But because of that, I have been to many Philadelphia sporting events as a fan of the other team. 
the most intimidating would have been a Monday night football game between the Panthers and the Eagles. Thankfully, at that point in the season, both teams stunk, and there was no hope of the playoffs for either, so the stakes were dialed down just a little bit. But I still had to walk into that stadium with my Panther sweatshirt on, but the jacket zipped up, so you just saw a little bit of blue, expecting the booze, expecting some of the choice language, expecting animosity to be aimed in my direction once they discovered I was not cheering for the beloved Eagles. And it came, and I endured it. And Jesus is saying, disciples of Jesus Christ need to have that same expectation as we go out into this world. The world is not going to applaud us. It's not going to rally around us and hold us up as the example to follow. It's going to boo you. It's going to hurl insults at you. It's going to try to intimidate, to resist you. It's going to hate us and despise us. Why? Why does the world hate these and all disciples of Jesus Christ? Why has history proven it to be so? Jesus gives us a number of reasons. We're just going to fly through them here. The first of which is himself. Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. We just sang the hymn, Man of Sorrows. On the one hand, that hymn emphasizes the uniqueness of Christ's sorrows. He bore the full brunt of God's wrath to bring full atonement. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But his sorrows also included bearing shame and scoffing rude. He was ridiculed. He was spit on. He was cursed at. He was hated. Even before the cross, he was hated. The religious authorities tried to trap him, refute him. They falsely accused him, said he was demon-possessed, a drunkard. His hometown kicked him out. They thought he was crazy. He was nearly pushed off a cliff. Jesus was regularly rejected and hated. And as go the master, so go the servants. But Jesus also says, it's not just because of myself. It's because of who the disciples are. We see this in verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Because of Christ, you and I, disciples of Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, no longer belong to this world. And the world no longer loves us. How could it? Disciples are new creations, says Paul. They're holy people, says Peter. They're born of God, says John in his letter to the church. The world doesn't love those kinds of people. The world loves its own. It celebrates its own. It smiles on its own. And we know also from scripture that friends of the world are enemies towards God, James chapter 4. And John again in his letter would declare the world lies in the power of the evil one. The world hates what does not belong to it and conform to it. It hates what God loves, loves what God hates. 
Therefore, it means it's going to hate us. Because we have a new master, a good master, a gracious and kind master. We have a new or renewed purpose in life to live for the glory of God as we were originally created. Not for the glory of ourselves, not for the glory of this world. We now long for his will to be done, not ours. We even want to conform to his ways, knowing that that's going to put us in contrast with this world. So Jesus says, you'll be hated because of me. You'll be hated because you no longer belong here. And he also says, you're going to be hated because of what I came to do. Look at verses 22 and 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen. No, Jesus is not saying that before he came, sin was non-existent. Or that the world was perfect. The world was in sin before Jesus came. And men were sinners. But Jesus is saying that with his coming, things have changed. Because he, to a deeper level, has exposed the sinful motivations, the sinful desires, the sinful heart of men. He has shown them just how deep their rebellion against God has gone. He has shown them who they truly serve what they truly love, just how guilty they stand before the Creator. He has proved the words he told Nicodemus on that evening in the dark. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. Jesus exposed man's love of darkness. He exposed it as he spoke words of truth. He even exposed it as he did works of mercy and grace. People hated him for it. He exposed it as he revealed the Father to all who came near. Sinclair Ferguson compares Jesus' work of exposing to the Son. This is what he writes. The shining of the sun can cause flowers to open and give off the sweetest aromas. But it can also dry up polluted water so that it gives off a noxious stench. The words and the work of Christ revealed humanity's awful stench. Our awful stench. And that exposure continues today as his disciples walk in obedience to him. Sometimes people are going to hate you because of the things that we do. Even things like showing mercy and compassion. Even things like extending forgiveness and grace. They will also laugh at our convictions, especially when they find out our convictions carry real weight in the real world. They will hurl insults at us when we stand on the truth of God's word and live it out daily. But on the other side, we're also promised some will be attracted to it. Some will want to know more. 
Some will seek us out to know what it is that makes us different. The call for us is to be faithful all the same. Be winsome in your witness. Seek to love your unbelieving family, friends, neighbors, and strangers well. Even out-love them, if that's possible. Yes, do good works in the name of Jesus Christ. But don't be surprised when they hate you for it. Don't be surprised when they brush it off. Don't be surprised when they make fun of you for it. The world hated what Jesus did. And they're going to hate what we do in his name as well. And Jesus then keeps peeling back the layers. He ultimately attributes the world's hatred to hatred of the Father. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. They've seen and hated both me and my Father, Jesus says in verses 21 and 23. Jesus has already made it abundantly clear of the relationship he has with the Father. He has revealed the Father. He and the Father are one. He is in the Father. To love the Father is to both love and be loved by the Father. And so if all that is true, the, the negatives should also be true. To reject Christ is to reject the Father. To hate Christ is to hate the Father. Every response then to Jesus Christ is ultimately a response to the Father. And we know this world rejects God as its creator. It rejects him as its rightful judge. It rejects him as its redeemer. It rejects even the very purpose for which God created it, his glory. Jesus brought this full revelation of the Father, full of grace and truth. And how did the world respond? Crucify him. Put him to death. We don't want him. And disciples adopted into the family of God, we can expect that same treatment as we live to the glory of our Heavenly Father, who this world continues to hate. And then lastly, Jesus gives the final reason, and it's for no reason at all. And to make this point, he quotes David from Psalm 69, which Dan read earlier for us. But the word that was written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Like David during this psalm, Jesus had no reason for hatred. He never offended anyone legitimately. He never committed a sin against anyone. He never sinned against the Father. What Jesus faced was unwarranted, it was unjustified, but it was not meaningless. And here we can find comfort, even as we expect the world's hatred. God is sovereign over the hatred that we face, that we have faced, that we will face. He is working in it for his good and glorifying purposes. And as we confessed earlier, we have this promise that no amount of hatred, no amount of ridicule, no amount of rejection can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we also have a Savior who endured it. 
And that Psalm 69 was, the, was on the lips of our Savior as he endured it. So it can be on our lips as we endure it. We can cry out to our Heavenly Father as we face hostility. We can flee to him as our mighty fortress. We can find strength then to go and love as Christ did. Love the sinners. Love those who hate us. Be that aroma of Christ in this sin-cursed, evil, and broken world. The smell will attract some to the Savior. Most, however, are going to be repulsed by it. Expect it. Take it to the Father. Find comfort in your Savior. And then keep on serving Him, humbly and obediently. So after Jesus tells the disciples to expect hatred, he gets to maybe the more comforting or overtly comforting news. Expect the Spirit's help. We see this in verses 26 and 27. Now, I didn't include this information earlier, but when I went to that Monday night football game, I had a friend. With me was my cousin's husband, Zach. Real nice guy. But for those of you who don't know Zach, it's all of you. He's a Giants fan. If you don't know the NFL, Eagles and Giants fans are like oil and water. They don't blend. They have no love lost for one another. So he gladly joined me in cheering for and celebrating the Panthers. He received my high fives. He told me to ignore the boos and the cheers, or the jeers, and he stood next to me as others yelled at me to sit down. I was not on my own. Zach was my wonderful helper. Jesus promises a helper for his disciples as they endure animosity. And as good as Zach was, this helper is far better. This helper is the same one promised back in chapter 14. He's the same helper we're going to look at in two weeks after the missions conference next week in chapter 16. It is none other than the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. And in these two very short verses, Jesus emphasizes two things about the Spirit's help that should comfort us as we face the world's hostility. The first is where the Spirit comes from, and that is namely both the Father and the Son. Verse 26, For when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. Now this is a big theological con uh, concept here. We're going to get Trinitarian here. Jesus is pulling back the curtain to reveal something about the mystery of the Trinity in this verse. He's providing his disciples, for the purpose of their comfort, a glimpse into the eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This Spirit is not some new character who suddenly arrived on the scene when Jesus came. Neither is he isolated to only the Father or only the Son. The Spirit is the Spirit of God. He is God because only God can proceed from God. He is the Eternal One who is with the Son, not only as He walked this earth, but from the very beginning, when there was only God. We find this truth in one of the church's historic creeds, the Nicene Creed, which we do profess here from time to time. Where we say, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father 
and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Jesus does not promise to send someone who is pretty good or useful in a tight pinch. He is sending the best, the very best. He is sending God to help his disciples. To help them in their trouble, their anxiety, their weakness. They're called to endure the world's animosity. And he has sent that same spirit into our hearts to bring us new life, to sanctify us, to be our helper. And here in this verse, brothers and sisters, we need to, to grasp hold that the Trinity is not simply a theological concept that makes us sound smart. It's a profoundly critical truth that we as disciples need to grab hold of. One commentator even calls it an anchor for our soul. As we seek to endure hostility and opposition from this world. We have a helper from heaven who is bringing with him all the resources of heaven. We have the only person in the universe who knows the Father and the Son intimately. And because he's present with us, helps us to know the Father and the Son intimately. We have him dwelling within us to strengthen us, to comfort us, to help us. To help us, as we looked at last week, abide in Christ and stand firm through the fiercest of storms. This is why our closing hymn is a very short phrase that says, Think what spirit dwells within you. It's the spirit of God proceeding from the Father and the Son to be with us. Weak, troubled, finite disciples that we are. This then leads to the second nature of the help we receive from the Spirit. Jesus says, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. This will be the Spirit's greatest help. Especially for these disciples who walked with Jesus from the beginning of his earthly ministry. He is going to help them point to, talk about, make much of, exalt Jesus Christ. The Spirit is going to help transform these mumbling, bumbling, fumbling, at times idiots into confident, bold witnesses of Jesus Christ. What great hope that is for us. And again, we need no, not look any further than the book of Acts. For what did Peter do in Acts 2 right after the Spirit is poured out? He testified about Jesus Christ. Acts 2.32, this Jesus God raised up and of that... We are all witnesses. And we read similar refrains in Acts 3, Acts 5, Acts 10, Acts 13, and on. The Spirit has promised to help bear witness, and bearing witness is what he has helped disciples do from Acts 2 to the present day. And what exactly does bearing witness look like for us? I'll first give you the technical definition. This comes from former Westminster professor, Dr. Richard Gaffin, who said, This witness is a comprehensive interpretation of Christ's person and work. For a less technical definition, I'll give you Kevin DeYoung's words. Talking about Jesus. 
As human beings, we talk about a lot of things. Our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our jobs, our vacations, our hobbies, our sports teams, and everything else under the sun. But are we quick to talk about Jesus? What he has done for us? How he has saved us? How much of a savior he is for us? How he is at work in us to help us say no to sin, to put sin to death, and to help us walk in newness of life by the power of the Spirit? Are we eager or just as eager to bear witness about him as we are to bear witness about the game we watched last night, the TV show we just finished, or the book we just read? I'll be honest with you, I am not. Much to my shame. And no, I'm not meaning in some sort of cheesy salesman pitch type deal. You and I have the Spirit of God dwelling in us to help us talk about Jesus Christ, the Savior we just sung about, and how great and wonderful He is, how deep His love for us. How can we do anything but testify and bear witness to who He is? Not everyone will love it. Not everyone will find it appealing or genuine. They may think we're strange. So what do we do? We trust the Spirit to work in our hearts, to help continuing to help us open our mouths. Because this is what he's good at. This is his expertise. It's what he's been given to us for. So rely on his Spirit. Trust in the Spirit. Ask him for the strength to bear the world's hostility, to bear rejection, and to help you walk, to help us walk as faithful disciples bearing witness to Jesus Christ. In closing, I want to read a, a historian summary of how the second century Roman culture felt about second century Christians. Here it is. The authorities had now discovered that Christians were virtuous folk, but inexplicably hostile to the old religious tradition, and so obstinate in their dissent as to forfeit sympathy and preclude toleration. For those of you who don't know about second century Christianity, it was a period where persecution started to ramp up. And men such as Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, were martyred during this time. And why were they hated? Their virtue made them hostile to the religious traditions of their day. Their abstaining from horrible things like emperor worship, pagan idolatry, all forms of immorality, nullified their culture's compassion and acceptance. Can the same be said about us? Are we expecting the same to be said about us? Are we ready to forfeit the world's sympathy and tolerance in the name of faithfully walking as disciples of Jesus Christ? Are we ready to be treated as hostile simply because we love and serve Jesus? The world hates Christ and what he has to offer. It hates those who belong to him. 
May we heed these words, and not in a self-pitying kind of, oh, everybody hates us mentality, but neither in a hostile, let us put up our gloves and fight mentality. Instead, may we heed them by not being afraid, by not being surprised, and by trusting in our Savior to strengthen, equip, and embolden us to be faithful witnesses, even in a hostile world. Like our crucified Lord, disciples of Jesus can anticipate opposition from the world and strength from his spirit. Let us pray. Father God, we, or at least I confess, I don't want to be hated. I don't want to be rejected. But that is the calling that you have placed before your disciples, to be ready for it, to be expectant of it. Would you transform our minds, transform our hearts? Would we trust in the help of your spirit that we might endure hatred, whatever it might look like, and that as we endure, we would be faithful to open our mouths and bear witness to Jesus Christ, our great Savior, that we would be that aroma, entrusting the results to you. We ask that you would bring many to yourself, family and friends, as a result of our faithful witness. But we also understand that that may not be your plan, so we entrust them to you. Give us strength. Give us obedience, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen.